it is still technically August, I'm gonna go ahead and jump ahead a few days into September and say it is spooky season. Welcome to this episode of What the Actual F. Hi, my name is Harmony and I'm your host here. This is going to be the first episode of the spooky season, if you couldn't tell by my intro. I love this time of year. Halloween is my favorite time, and although I still have two days technically until September graces us with its presence, I am welcoming the spooky season. And you may not be as welcoming to the spooky season as I am, but you know what? It'd be a lot cooler if you were. <laughs> I know it wasn't funny, but you could have just laughed to be nice. <laughs> Let's continue the show, shall we? So for this very first episode of the spooky season, and don't worry, all the episodes in the spooky season will not be ghost, paranormal, or all things spooky related, we will still talk about crime. However, this first episode is going to be sort of a spooktacular one. <clears throat> I'm going to stop with the puns. I know. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> okay. So, what I have for you guys today is actually, well, it's kind of creepy. It's about a cursed house with some very real deaths tied to it and its residents. And, of course, life after we die, or at least emails. Don't worry, you stick around and that's going to make some sense here soon, I promise. So, what do you say we go ahead and jump into this first episode of the spooky season? Spooky, scary skeletons and shivers down my spine. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go ahead and begin, shall we? First up, we are going to dive into all things spooky with Jean Harlow and her creepy house. Wait, 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 let me get spooky. Dun, 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 dun. That sounds Game of Thrones. Okay, you know what? <laughs> let's just let's just start the show. Jean Harlow has died. The world of moviegoers mourn the vivacious blonde bombshell who has died of uremic poisoning in the very flower of her youth. We show her here with French Tone and William Powell in roles that brought world fame. It seemed that enduring happiness was not for her. Her last great friendship was for William Powell, who was at her bedside when she died. Powell declared that behind the hard-boiled characters she portrayed, Jean Harlow was the tenderest, sweetest girl in Hollywood. Only 26, it seems impossible that she is dead. Jean Harlow was actually born Harleen Harlow Carpenter and was born on March 3rd, 1911. At 16, she married a man by the name of Charles McRue. However, this marriage didn't last really, and she would end up moving to Los Angeles and become Jean Harlow at this point. Then, in 1929, she would appear in Double Whoopi and The Saturday Night Kid. This is when Jean Harlow would become known as the original Bond bombshell of Hollywood. Jean Harlow would rise through Hollywood and her star power knew almost no bounds. However, her personal life would become somewhat of a tragedy. In July of 1932, she married a man by the name of Paul Byrne. Paul was a successful MGM executive. This marriage, though, was pretty surprising. Yeah, okay, it was kind of common at the time for like older men to have younger women at their side. 
But in all reality, that was more so as like the hush-hush relationship that was like their secretaries, they were banging on the side and they had like a woman their age as their wife. Like, let's be real, back then times were a little bit different. It just wasn't common for older men to marry young women. However, despite Paul and Jean's 22-year difference, it seemed that this couple had found true love. Now, many people were pretty confused by this startling couple because in many people's eyes and a lot of stuff that I read, they were just blatantly calling Paul unattractive while saying that Jean was just this stunning beauty. And yes, she was. But like, just because you may find somebody unattractive doesn't mean everybody else does. And no, that does not mean that I found Paul attractive, because no, I didn't. But I'm not gonna sit here and say he was ugly, because that's just mean. And you know, although he's not what I would call attractive conventionally or anything like that, I'm just not gonna call the man ugly. However, you know, the two, they seem to match. And who are we to stop anyone's happiness? So yay, they found love, they got married, and here we are, they're together. At this point, Paul was like, you know what, I think I want to buy some sort of extravagant, beautiful home for, for us. And he did that. He bought just that, this extravagant, beautiful Bavarian home. If you do not know what Bavarian means, it is a type of German style like a, a German architecture. And I know this, I was born in Germany. I was actually born in Bavaria, Germany, where this is insanely common because <gasps> that's where it's from. So this was located at 9820 Easton Drive in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, California. He bought this home for him and his wife, Jean Harlow. Now it was rumored that Paul and Jean had issues in their marriage from the very beginning. Surprise, surprise, 22 year difference and you guys had issues? No. And sadly, the marriage would come to an end after just two months. And some may say what we're about to dive into is the very first strike of the curse of the Jean Harlow home. What do you think? This is a murder. Plain and simple. Why do you sound so sure? You see where the gun is? About six or seven feet away from the body? Yeah? What of it? Wise up, Mayor. How do you think it got there? You think he shot his brains out and then tossed the thing into the middle of the room? Someone killed him and then threw the gun off to the side, likely in a state of shock. I've seen it before. On September 5th, 1932, Paul's butler found him dead in his bedroom. He was naked with a bullet hole in his head. Authorities did recover a suicide note allegedly written by Paul himself, and Paul's death was ruled a suicide, no matter how odd and bizarre it looked. And by odd and bizarre, I mean definitely not a fucking suicide. However, Paul Byrne's secretary would claim someone murdered him because, like, that's what it fucking looked like. Another employee also said the handwriting in this suicide note just couldn't have been his and it must have been a forgery. Authorities would also learn that before Paul's death, he received a visit from a woman by the name of Dorothy Millette. This was actually, dun-dun-dun, his common-law wife. <gasps> what? I know all of you, the audience, is like gasping with shock. 
Like I said, old Hollywood, shit was fucking weird. So then, two days after Paul Byrne's death, Dorothy jumped to her death from the Delta King steamboat. Oh yeah, we're not even at the tip of the iceberg here. Like, a lot of death is happening in this episode, guys. A lot. This is, uh, I should have probably said trigger warning. This episode's grim. So here's the question, though. Did Paul Byrne actually commit suicide, or did somebody kill him? Of course, the rumor mill spread that Dorothy may have been responsible for Paul's death, and then she ended up taking her life because she couldn't live with the guilt. Or who knows, maybe Paul really did end his life. I mean, him and Jean had just ended their relationship, and then, you know, his common-law wife maybe showed up and was like, excuse me, you were actually married to somebody else? What? And like, I don't know, maybe they fought, she lost it, like a passion, a crime of passion, and then she was like, you know, bereaved with guilt over what she had done, and you never really know. Or, like, maybe he did just end his life. I don't really know. Like, but there was a lot of stuff about the scene that was just a bit off. The gun didn't really land in a place it should have if he had taken his own life. But, you know, six feet away from the body, I guess it happens. <laughs> right? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the gun and the body wanted to have that six-foot distance because of COVID, but then again, this was in the 1930s. I don't I'm trying to put reasoning here, okay? Let's move along. Whatever you'd like to believe, suicide or not, it was ruled a suicide. However, many people would go on to believe that this was not the case. And along with that, many people would also believe that this was the first strike of the curse of the Jean Harlow home. And believe me, this may seem likely because as we move forward, oh, it just gets so much worse. It was September 4th, 1932, but the newlyweds had a spat that night. I guess it's not surprising there was a little tension between them, a lot of reading books and not a whole lot of anything else. So Jean came to visit Mama, alone. And while she was gone, the unimaginable happened. Now what actually happened, what they said to each other, we will never know. The night of September 4th, 1932, Paul Byrne put a 38 to his head and pulled the trigger, standing nude in front of his dressing room mirror. But maybe there's more to the story. It seems Paul Byrne had another skeleton in his closet. David Baldwin is a cousin of Gene Harlow's. The only thing was is that Gene didn't know about Paul's um, um, common-law marriage with the lady in New York who had a psychiatric history, Dorothy Millette. It appears Dorothy Millette had shown up at their home and had a scene with Paul Byrne because under New York law, they were still legally married. They had a common law marriage, which made Paul Byrne a bigamist. Boy, this guy was a real prize. So was it the crazy woman from Byrne's past who pushed him over the edge? Or did she pull the trigger? We had to come to the conclusion that Paul Byrne was murdered. He was murdered by Dorothy Millette. All the evidence points to it. There were eyewitnesses who saw her flee the scene of the murder. There was a car waiting for her. But that's a theory that has never been proven because no one was ever able to interrogate Dorothy Millette. They found out she had taken a steamboat to Sacramento, but she never arrived. And a week after Paul Byrne's death, her body was found in the Sacramento River. So Jean 
Harlow would move on and find love again when she married a man by the name of Harold Rawson. However, the marriage to this cinematographer wouldn't last very long and the two would get divorced after just eight months. Five years after Paul Byrne's death, Jean Harlow's health would take a turn for the worse. While filming the movie Saratoga, Jean would become ill and have to be hospitalized. Then, on June 7th of 1937, Jean Harlow would pass away at the age of 26 due to kidney failure. As I stated, she was filming the movie Saratoga during her death, to which they would go on to finish the movie but they had to use a body double for the rest of her scenes. This isn't where our story ends, because as you know, Jean's house was still standing. This brings us to 1963 when a celebrity hairstylist by the name of Jay Sebring would buy the former Harlow home as it become known. After moving into the home, he began dating a beautiful actress by the name of Sharon Tate. Between the years of 1964 and 1966, Jay and Sharon dated, which means she often stayed in the home with Jay. And she had some interesting stories to share about her experiences there. As you guys know, Sharon Tate would go on to marry the famous director Roman Polanski, whom she did leave Jay for. So as I said, Sharon Tate had some pretty interesting stories to share about her stay in the Harlow home. In the 1968, she had an interview with somebody by the name of Dick Kleiner. He asked her if she had ever experienced anything supernatural. Sharon would go on to tell Dick about a horrifying experience in the former Jean Harlow house. She went on to recount about a night that she was sleeping in the very room that Paul Byrne had died. She said she woke up and saw a strange, ghostly man in her bedroom. She soon realized exactly who she was staring at. It was Paul Byrne. She then immediately got up and ran out of the bedroom toward the stairs. This is when she said she saw a different ghostly figure that was tied to the staircase. Although she couldn't determine the gender of this figure, she assumed it was her or Jay somehow. She also noticed that the spirit had a slit in its throat. Sharon would actually end up calling this some form of premonition. However, Little did she know that Paul Byrne's ghost had possibly visited her as a warning. Because as many of you may know, Sharon Tate and several of her friends were brutally murdered. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. Polyansky, who directed Rosemary's Baby and other films of suspense, reportedly is in Europe. One of the first officers on the scene, Police Sergeant Stanley Conrad. Well, at the scene we had uh, one body in a vehicle near the gate, a man and a woman in the main room, and a man and a woman on the lawn in front of the house. All deceased. By what form? 
Uh, it appeared to be uh, knife punctures, possibly gunshot. We can't tell. We don't know for sure this time. Was the area in disarray, or was it... There were signs of a struggle in the uh, main house and also in the uh, guest house in the rear. Yes. Was there a television set going or radio no, going? Or no, there was no TV going. The radio was not going. The lights were on. Uh, one suspect was arrested in the uh, rear house, the guest house. Taken into custody by officers was the home's 19-year-old caretaker, William Garretson. He was arrested on suspicion of murder. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. They were discovered this morning by a maid who ran screaming to neighbors. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. On August 9th, 1969, a very pregnant Sharon Tate was staying at 10050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. It wasn't far from Jay's home, by the way, but on this day, Jay and some of his other friends and Sharon's friends were staying with Sharon while her director husband, Roman, was out in London. Now, unknown to Sharon and her friends, they were about to become victims to Charles Manson's cult. Charles had sent a group of his followers to break into Sharon's home and kill everybody inside. The victims would go on to be Sharon Tate, voice chef Rakoski, Abigail Folger, Jay Sebring, and a man by the name of Stephen Parent. Then, on the next day, Manson's followers would go on to kill a wealthy couple by the name of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. So, did Sharon Tate actually see the ghost of Paul Byrne in a room that night? No one knows for sure, however, I find it a little bit eerie that the thing that she would go on to see by the staircase is very close to how she was killed. And another eerie thing is she died a year after the interview was done with which she had mentioned having that premonition. Now since Jean Harlow's death, people have lived in her old house there, and many of them have gone on to claim to see ghosts of both Jean and Paul. Is this house cursed though is the question I leave with you. Yes, I'm sure sitting there listening to me tell you these stories about the home and those who resided there once make you go, eh, not really, it's just a house harmony. But Jean Harlow, Paul Byrne, Sharon Tate, and Jay Sebring all lived in that house and didn't live much longer after. Just a little bit strange, I think. In the end, I'll let you decide on how you look at this. Is the house truly cursed? Or did this group of people just all together have a sad yet untimely and horrid end? And it was all just a coincidence. I'll let you be the judge. However, our next story may be a little bit harder for you to brush off as a coincidence. My name's Tim Hart. We're in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, at my home with my family. Hey, Mikey, you take this garbage out, please? Jack Farise was one of my best friends for the last 17 years, and uh, my right-hand man, and 
my best friend, you know. It's just us being goofy in a limo. <laughs> uh, at first he hated me because I was the new kid at the school. Then he grew to love me after a few months and we're inseparable all through high school and uh, through college up until, you know, recently. Okay, so this, this case I have for you, this story I have for you, this one is complexing. I believe in the afterlife for many different reasons. I also have my own beliefs when it comes to ghosts and timelines and what we experience in quote as a haunting. But we don't have time for that. Let's dive into this whole case of Jack and his emails. For this, we have to go back to November of 2011. A man by the name of Tim Hart had an email come into his inbox from his friend by the name of Jack. The subject of this email had somewhat of an ominous undertone. It read, I'm watching. Little strange, but okay. The text of the email, though, was just as menacing, reading, Did you hear me? I'm at your house. Clean your fucking attic. But the tone of this message wasn't what made Tim think of it as just, okay, this is fucking weird. No, because Tim and Jack had been friends for 17 years, meaning they are well adjusted to each other's sense of humor. However, what made this email so strange and had Tim's stomach falling to the floor was the eerie fact that Jack had been dead for five months. Yet here Tim was, reading an email that had just been sent to him from Jack's account. He was very sensitive, kind-hearted, unique. Unique, I guess, is, is Jack. I don't know, like me and him had something super special. Uh... I found out that Jack had passed away, which it turned out to be a heart arrhythmia. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's even one day, and it's weird. One night in November, I was sitting on my couch going through my emails on the, my phone, and it popped up, sender Jack Freeze. And I turned ghost white, and I read it, and it was very quick and short, but to a point that uh, only Jack and I could relate on. It's right here. Like it says, Jack Farise, I'm watching. It said, I'm watching. Did you hear me? I'm at your house. Clean your f***ing attic. So, on June 10th of 2011, Jack, who lived in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, actually ended up suffering a heart attack at his home. This loss was and is still very deeply felt by his friends and loved ones. Jack was known to be quick with a snappy comeback and often considered a master of sarcasm. He was well known for his sense of humor and his extreme kindness. His obituary was read in the Scranton Times. Yep, Scranton's, my office fans are out there like, Scranton, what? Sorry, 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 this is serious. So, on June 14th in 2011, they would go on to describe him in his obituary as having a quote, bigger than life personality. 
He loved his kids, who were then three and four. He loved music and tattoos, and he also loved all things that were tattoo artwork. Which I can totally understand as someone who is in the body modification community, I understand and relate completely. Jack loved motorcycles and he loved animals. Quote, Jack could make you laugh even on your worst days, read his obituary. Continuing on with, he will be deeply missed by all those whose lives he touched. Jack was just 32 years old when he passed away. So, an email coming in months after he has since passed away is a bit strange. Going on in an interview, Tim Hart would say it was the attic reference that made the message so cryptic. Because according to Tim, it was, quote, a point that only Jack and I could relate on. The second to last time Jack had ever visited Tim was at his house prior to his death. They had gone up to the attic together. They were trying to figure out what they could do to kind of finish the attic. Tim said at this point the floor was just kind of dusty and that it was just, you know, it just needed a little bit of tidying. To which Jack looked at Tim and was like, man, you better clean this place up before I get up here. Tim said when he said those words, there was nobody else up there with him. Meaning only Jack and Tim knew this little exchange they had. So Tim believes the email is relating to that. Now one email, okay, I can understand. He passed away, but maybe he said something on a timer. You know, who knows? Technology's weird. But what if I tell you, this isn't the only person who received an email from beyond the grave. No, Jack was busy. Basically was like a brother to me growing up showed me a lot of things throughout life. Uh, his death was extremely tough. I had an email from Jack. Uh, the email was sent actually November 21st at 10.30 at night. It just said, hey Jim, how you doing? I knew you were gonna break your ankle. Tried to warn you, gotta be careful. And then it was signed Jack Furries. I had broken my ankle actually about the week before, walking out the door on the way to work. And really didn't see anyone besides couple friends, a couple people in my family, that was it. I would like to say Jack sent it, just because I look at it as he's gone, but he's still trying to connect with me and still trying to tell me things to move along and feel better. As I said, he wasn't the only one to receive an email from Jack. No, at least Jack's account was pretty busy. His cousin Jimmy McGraw also found something odd in his inbox on November 21st at about 10.30 p.m. as you heard. The subject line read, Hey Jim, and the message goes as follows. How you doing? I knew you were gonna break your ankle and tried to warn you. Gotta be careful. Tell Rock for me. Great song, huh? <laughs> You're welcome. Couldn't get through to him. His email didn't work. Now Jim had in fact broken his ankle about a week before getting this email. This happened as he was heading out of the door to go to work. And he really had only told very few people about the exact incident of what occurred. So you can imagine questions start to arise when these odd mysterious messages were coming into people's inboxes. Was it possible that Jack himself somehow was communicating with his friends and loved ones beyond the grave? or? 
Did somebody hack into Jack's account and send these warped messages? If so, how would they have known what they did to be able to make the closest people in Jack's life believe it was Jack himself? How would this hacker know these little details from Jack and his friends? Was it just some lucky guess? If it was a hacker, could this hacker have known these things somehow? Or was it really Jack? Just somehow trying to assure his friends and loved ones he was still here. Part of me really hopes it's that one. We looked into it a little bit, you know, just a little bit because we spoke to his mother um, and she told us, you know, think what you want about it or just uh, accept it as a gift, and which I did. And if somebody's messing around, I don't care because I take it whatever way I want. The emails that people had received, I thought they were fantastic. They were great. I saw, you know, they made people happy, upset some people. But to me, that's keeping people talking about him, you know? You try to replace it, and you can't because of his personality. It was him. He's missing. And it's affected everyone around him to a great deal. So were the emails that were sent to Jack's friends and loved ones truly from him? Or was somebody just in Jack's account and thought it would be real friggin' hilarious to send random messages to random people and just happen to know exactly what to say to these random people? Hmm, I don't know. I do find it rather strange, unusual, and very bizarre. Whether or not it was Jack from Beyond the Grave, or somebody who just happened to get into his account and know exactly what to say, those messages are cherished by all who receive them. Because the fact remains, we have no idea what happens after death, but everybody who's ever lost somebody would give anything to hear from them again. So however you look at it, Jack's friends and loved ones are just thankful that they did. Jason, you could sing? I didn't think you could talk, bitch! Slash, street, slash, all night!
This is Halloween, this is Halloween, ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum. Sorry, 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 I didn't see you there. Well, I, I guess I can't see you because I'm behind a recorded message here. <laughs> Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this very first episode of the spooky season. And I sure do hope that my weirdness didn't hot scare you away. If you are still here, well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the mystery of the Jean Harlow house and its curse. I'm not sure if you believe that the house is truly cursed, but I kind of have a little bit of a hmm, not so sure about it vibe. Would I buy the home? <laughs> probably not, probably not. Actually, I probably would, let's be honest. <laughs> I like creepy shit, I really, really do. Honestly, anyone who knows me will tell you, if it could be haunted, if it could be cursed, if it's spooky, you can go ahead and give it to me because I want it, thank you. But let's move over to the emails from Jack. What about those? Were those really sent from Jack himself beyond the grave? Or was it just some hacker that knew exactly what to say and who to say it to? I don't know. All I know is both of these stories find themselves to be a bit disturbing. They kind of hit your noggin, roll around, and kind of haunt your mind. Little strange, a little bizarre, and very unusual. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode of What the Actual Left. I look forward to giving you so much more content coming up in our spooky season here. There'll be crime, which means murder. There'll be ghosts, There'll be mysteries, who done it? It was Mrs. Peacock in the study! I have so much in store for you coming up in this spooky season. Anyways, until the next episode of What the Actual Left, I hope you guys have a safe and fantastic rest of your week. Go get yourself a pumpkin spice latte, throw on some hocus pocus, or hey, nightmare before Christmas, whichever floats your boat or tickles your pickle, as I like to say. It doesn't matter because it is spooky season. It is time for Halloween. So enjoy yourself. However, until we meet again, goodbye and adieu. Love you.